Uh, good morning, church family. What a pleasure it is to be with you again this morning uh, as we worship our, our God, our King. Cheryl and I were extremely blessed last weekend to have a, a, a few days to get away together and, and uh, recharge, as it were, and we, uh, we had the opportunity to attend Grace Church, Grace Life Church there in Edmonton and have a bit of a visit with Pastor Coates, and, and that was really nice. Uh, really enjoyed that time. God is doing such a good work in that church, and, uh, and uh, we ask you to just keep them in your prayers. Um, they are facing problems, really good problems. Their building is packed, and they're trying to figure out how to minister to all these new folks that God has brought into their, into their, into their midst, and what a treasured problem to have, and we're kind of experiencing that same problem here, and, and we love it, um, and we need wisdom, so keep them in your prayers, keep us in your prayers. Today, we're returning to our study in Matthew's gospel. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 and follow along. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now found, was blind. Now I see. That's exactly what we're talking about this morning. How is it that you came to see? How is it that you came to trust in truth? Yeah, we, we were praying this morning, and, and Sean very appropriately prayed that, that we would respond as we hear God calling, as we hear God speaking, and and I think uh, uh, one of the things we, we so easily jump to when we think of the idea of responding is the idea of doing something. But you know, there's something we need to respond to even before that. We need to respond to the truth itself given to us. And, and, and only by God's grace will we respond in understanding. It requires a work of God in our heart in order to understand. And if you get that out of our text today, you're doing well. That truth is something we need to know. Matthew 13, we're going to begin at verse 1 and read through verse 17. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them out. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, 
some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts has grown dull, and with their ears they, have, they can barely hear, and their eyes have, uh, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for its inclusion in Matthew's gospel. Give us understanding today. Help us to to perceive truth here this morning, Father, to see you for who you are and how you work and to give you glory and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A wonderful text we have this morning. I, a few things that I want us to see as we begin this text. Number one, let's see its connection to the previous chapter. Matthew is very good at giving us a teaching and, and then demonstrating that teaching uh, it, it, to be true. And, and we have something of that right here in our text. Our passage begins that same day. And so we need to connect this to what came before. That same day, referring to the day that Jesus was in the house at the end of chapter 12. And he, told his, he was told that his mother and his brothers were waiting outside. They had come to see him. And he asks in Matthew 12 and verse 48, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It's on that same day. And so Matthew, very careful here to make sure we understand this. And we connect these two things. Here is my mother and my brothers, those who do the will of my Father. And then Jesus leaves the house and now gives a demonstration, as it were, of who it is that are his mother and brothers. In the house, it is those inside, those who who are doers of the Father's will, not those who are outside, who are brothers. And as we move into this chapter, we see this put on display in the teaching and lack thereof to those both inside who receive the teaching and those outside who do not. 
Verse 1, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. We see large crowds around, around our Lord often. In fact, the events of the, the past few chapters have not all taken place at one particular setting, but as we saw John's disciples come to Jesus, there was a large crowd. Jesus went through the grain fields he, he, with his disciples. They plucked grain and ate, and we saw that here. And then he entered the synagogue where he healed a man, and we're told that a crowd began to ask, could this be the one? Is this the promised son of David? And then, of course, the great crowd to close chapter 12. So crowd that they couldn't even all fit in the house. And there were some outside, including his mother and brothers, trying to get in to see him, but could not. Here in verse 2, we're told great crowds gathered about him. And so no small number of people here that's interested in the Lord Jesus. He gets into a boat, likely with his disciples, as we'll see that there's a, a distinction, a private conversation that takes place later with the twelve. We find in this section of Matthew what is referred to as the kingdom parables. A number of parables here given, eight in total. Uh, this one that we read of today and Seven others, four of them offered to the crowd, three of them only to the disciples. Today we read and we make observations of this first parable, but we really don't get much into building an understanding of this text uh, until, Lord willing, next week as Jesus actually gives us the explanation of this parable. But this first parable is, is quite important for us. In fact, listen to Jesus' words concerning this parable that we find in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4 and verse 13. Just before he explains this parable to his disciples, he says, Do you not understand this parable? How then... Will you understand all parables? And so it seems that this parable and understanding this parable is actually the key to understanding all parables. There's something in here we need to understand. We're about to see Jesus employ here in this chapter of Matthew. Most, most uh, of these parables that we see here in Matthew 13 are also recorded in Luke's Gospel and Mark's Gospel. And Jesus often used parables to teach. And this isn't the first time in, in Matthew's Gospel. For example, I mean, we have the, the, the wise and the foolish builders. We have the, the lamp on the lampstand. We have new wine, old wineskins, and things like this. Often he used very familiar, well-known truths 
which he, he would set before those that he instructed. But there is something very new here in Matthew 13. And we see this point brought forward in verse 34 of this chapter. Verse 34 says this, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And that's what's new. We also see this immediately following Jesus giving this parable. Something odd was happening that really grabbed the attention of his disciples. There was something different from how Jesus had previously instructed the crowds and used uh, illustrations like the one we see today. We see that following this parable, the disciples asked Jesus two questions, and I think it's very important for us to understand the order in which they asked those two questions. They did ask him to explain the parable, and that's good for us. I'm glad we have the explanation of this parable, but that was not the first question. That was not the most important question that they had of Jesus on this occasion. In verse 10, we see the most important question that they have. And that question is this, why? Why do you speak to them in parables? Now, they're not asking why do you use parables. They're altogether too familiar with that. This is a very common way of teaching. But the problem was that Jesus only spoke in parables. He only spoke in parables. Why is this a problem? Well, we need to understand what a parable is. It's from a compound word, parabole. It's the combination of, of bolo, meaning to, to lay, to place beside, to place alongside of, and and, uh, and, and, of course, para, uh, to lay, and then para alongside. So to lay alongside of. Uh, a parable is a, a story, an illustration, placed alongside of a teaching, something of, of common knowledge, something uh, observable, something everyone already knew, in order to lay aside a spiritual truth to, to illustrate a truth they didn't know. To, to, to expose the meaning of spiritual truth that they needed to know. Now a parable is not an allegory. And we need to understand the difference. These are not stories where everything in them carries a meaning which needs to be sought after. Not every character in the parable is teaching something. Not every detail needs to be examined to that level. Those of you who might be familiar with John Bunyan's The Pilgrim Progress, for example, um, that's a, an allegory where every detail in the story carries a meaning. Very careful, we don't impose that kind of an understanding on a parable. The church needs to be careful of this because throughout history there have been men in the church who have done just that. Men like Origen, men like Augustine. As, as good as Augustine was in some areas, in a lot of areas, in fact, 
Augustine had some problems in how he interpreted some of the parables because he liked to run to the ideas of allegory. We've got to be careful there. We will come up with some wrong understandings if we do that. No, a parable is an earthly story with a common, ordinary details of everyday life that everyone would understand and accept as true, which is then used to teach normally one single truth. And I said this, uh, this is something new in Matthew's Gospel, not, not the employment of parables, but the reason for speaking parables in the first place. As R.T. France writes, A parable is an utterance which does not carry its meaning on the surface and which thus demands thought and perception if the hearer is to benefit from it. End quote. Uh, More, in fact, I would argue than that. Uh, It it requires comparison. Uh, A parable is one well-known truth used to illustrate the operation of an unknown truth. But if there is no comparison, all you're left with is something you already knew. Here, for example, in this parable of the sower, which frankly is a terrible title, it's more appropriate to call this the parable of the soils because this is really about the four different soil types in focus in this parable. But if this parable is the only thing given, then Jesus' hearers learn nothing they didn't already know. They already know that seed sown on hard ground grows nothing. They already know that. That seed sown on Thorny ground grows no crop. They already know that this is not earth-shaking stuff for them. They they already know this. This is not a lesson on agriculture from a carpenter. That would be like me trying to teach BJ or Keith about how to increase yields of their crops. Oh my goodness, if they took any advice from me, they would be in trouble. Hey, Guys, you should put seed on the ground. Like, that's about as much as I know. Yeah, and I would say on top of the ground, and they would say, yeah, yeah, we're not going to take advice from you. (laughs) Such basic agricultural truth, even a city dweller knows. I'm not going to revolutionize their crops, their yields. That ain't going to happen. So, it's not until the well-known truth is compared or contrasted with something else that the teaching has any meaning beyond what the hearer already knows. And this is exactly what's new here in Matthew 13. Jesus only speaks in parables. He doesn't give any comparisons. He doesn't lay it alongside any spiritual truth. He just leaves at the parable. Which is doing exactly the opposite of a parable's normal purpose. Normally, the parable is to expose an unknown truth 
Here, Jesus is employing parables for the very purpose of hiding truth, of concealing truth. Thus, the question from the disciples, why parables? If you aren't going to lay them beside any spiritual truth and give knowledge of that truth, why would you do that, Jesus? Don't you know people need the comparison? Please recall the words of our Lord back in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's exactly what we have here in Matthew 13. And we're going to see that truth put into practice as Jesus chooses to reveal truth to some and intentionally chooses to hide truth from others. This is a real problem for the Jesus wants to save everybody thinking. Verse 3, he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and The thorns grew up and choked them out. Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Again, we're not going to dive in too deep here to the parable itself. We're just going to make some observations as we move through. Number one, there's only one sower. There's only one seed being sown. And it's good seed. The sower intentionally goes out for the purpose of casting this seed within his fields. And within those fields, there are four types of soil which the seed falls upon. You know, this sower could have been more careful in so as to only place the seed on good soil, but obviously... There's not such concern here with the sower for whatever reason. We're not going to speculate as to why. You know, maybe he can't tell the difference between, you know, what is good soil and what is is not good. Maybe, maybe Maybe he just doesn't have time. To to be so discriminating on where where he sows his seed. But what we do know is that as he sowed. Some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Along the path, uh, there, there would be paths on these fields, separating fields, which people could then walk through. For example, we read of Jesus and his disciples walking through the field, plucking grain, heads of grain, and eating them. Well, they're not actually walking through the field. 
because while that would be fairly offensive to the farmer as they're trampling down his crop. No, they're, they're actually walking on these paths in between fields. Narrow paths, usually one person wide in between the fields. And of course, while you're probably familiar, I mean, even for a city dweller like myself, you know, the, those paths in my yard where my kids always walked, they, they never grow grass. They're just, they're just packed down. Kids, why can't you learn to take other paths? No, they just want to take that one path, and, and the grass never grows there. That's exactly what we're talking about here. Hard, packed down ground, some seed fell on that ground, could not penetrate the surface, and therefore uh, reach any, any nutrients, any, any moisture from the soil. Easy pickings for the birds following the sower looking for an easy meal. And so they devour them as he sows them on the path. And as he sowed some seed fell on a different type of soil, rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Rocky ground is not so much speaking of of ground that has rocks in it. Any farmer worth his salt would have cleared his field of such rocks. This is referring to land with little depth of soil before hitting bedrock. And, and if, you, if you only have a few feet of soil on top of bedrock, um, sure, you can grow something. In fact, that soil will receive moisture it, it will actually warm up quicker than the soil around it. Seeds planted in shallow depth soil will actually germinate faster. They'll spring to life. They'll actually look really good before the rest of the crop does, in fact. But when the sun rises, and that's not, it's not talking about when the sun comes up the very first day the seed is planted. It's talking about in the, in the heat of summer. When, when, the, when the heat really comes, when that dry, hot air comes, that soil gives up its moisture very, very rapidly. Its moisture it's, is stolen and those good-looking plants that shot up really fast, that looked really good really soon, well, they die. They wither. And they produce no crop. Other seed fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked them out. Why in the world would the sower sow seeds on weedy, thorn-infested ground? It's obviously not because he, he didn't know better. Broadcast seeding at this time, which was most often done before tilling the soil. And so when this guy is, is casting his seed on the soil, uh, he, he's not aware of what other seeds might have blown in to that portion of the field and then be tilled under along with his grain seed. 
I, I remember as speaking of weedy ground. I remember as a child growing up in, in West Texas, many a day were spent in the field hoeing weeds. Uh, we, we all know what herbicide is. That was my job. I was a herbicide. Go kill the weeds. And uh, I hated it, but that's just a side note. Um, but there was, there was a weed in, in Texas that we referred to as a careless weed. I don't know if we have that kind of thing here. It, it was called a careless weed because it could care less where it grew. And when it grew, did it ever grow? Those things would, would, would sink their roots down deep into the soil and, and spread out in, in, over vast areas. And anywhere you would find these careless weeds, what you would find is the crops were just choked right out. They, did, they just wouldn't grow well. These, these weeds would suck all of the nutrients and all of the moisture out of the ground and leave nothing left for the crop. Weedy, thorn-infested ground produces no harvest. Verse 8, Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And so good soil, good seed, good crop. And that's the idea here. Good soil, good seed, good crop. If we could just limit it down to good soil. Not even in the good soil, however, is there uh, just a, 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 a completely uh, level produce of crop. There's a variety, even in good soil. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. But the point is, all good soil produces a yield. I mean, in Jesus' day, a yield of eightfold was considered a phenomenal crop. And so, these people, they hear Jesus talking even thirtyfold. This is like off the charts amazing. And so, it's grabbing their attention here. A hundredfold? Are you kidding me? Like, nobody gets a hundredfold. So Jesus is grabbing their attention. I know nothing really about farming. And yet, as I read this, I go, yeah, okay, I get that. I, I, even I know that. He who has ears, let him hear. Let, let him hear what? Yeah, okay, I get it. So, you know, seed on a road, you get nothing. Duh. And here's the problem. This is the very point where Jesus is supposed to give the comparison and then call the people who have ears to respond. But instead, he just calls for a response without laying these self-evident truths beside the point he's trying to make. I mean, how does one respond to that parable if that's all you have? I guess I'm supposed to go out and buy some seed? I don't know. What, what, Jesus, what do you want from me? 
And here is the very point of the text. Truth be told, there is one who knows, right? The proper response then is, Jesus, what are you talking about? But the crowd doesn't do that. And this is the point of the text. Only those who have received Jesus for who he truly is, only those drawn to the Son by the will of the Father, only these will ask while the rest, rejecting him for who he is, they could care less. And I ask you to keep this in mind. The the words of our Lord to his disciples in John 15 and verse 6, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you. This is vital to our point here. As we saw in Matthew 11 and verses 26 and 27, Jesus here is choosing to whom he reveals spiritual truth concerning himself his word, his working, his kingdom. I titled this this sermon Revealing and Concealing the Kingdom of Heaven and we think, well, wait a minute. No, no, no. No, God wants to reveal the kingdom. But actually the point of this text is God chooses to some to conceal the kingdom. And now, We'll get to the question about the explanation of the parable, Lord willing, next Sunday. But today, let's just, let's just tackle the first question. Why parables? Why, why no explanation? Because Jesus actually gives us the answer here. And, and as we said earlier, all of the parables in this chapter are parables about the kingdom. The first four given to those who are not his disciples, to the crowds. And, uh, and for the purpose of concealing the kingdom. And in answering this question here, Jesus gives teaching even in the purpose of his not explaining the parable to the crowd about the very nature of the kingdom. Verse 10, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them... It has not been given. The kingdom is, re- re- is uh, revealed to some, and it is not revealed, or it is concealed to others. Now we need to pause for a moment here. We need to con- consider the kingdom that's in view in this text. If that were, uh, this, this can't be, Uh, It's obviously not about the establishment of an earthly kingdom. If it were, everyone's eyes would see it taking place. So, this isn't about the literal kingdom on earth taking place. The kingdom in view here is also not a reference to the eschatological kingdom that would require the judgment of God to first take place, separating God's people from His enemies. That hasn't happened yet at this point, so what Jesus is referring to here can't be the eschatological kingdom. Instead, what we have here is an immediate kingdom, 
an already present kingdom and in your presence kingdom within those who have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, the kingdom is this internal kingdom granted to all who believe, to all who call upon His name between His first coming and His establishment of an earthly kingdom, which will one day commence at His second coming, to be followed then by the eschatological kingdom, the eternal kingdom of the new heaven and the new earth. The people of Israel were expecting Messiah to come. They were expecting Him to take His place upon the throne of David, to rule over the world from Jerusalem, conquering His enemies, freeing them from oppression. And and they were right to think of, of the Messiah coming in this way. I mean, after all, the Old Testament actually does promise this. But the Old Testament also shows us that before that happens, God's chosen people, Israel, would reject their king. God would harden their hearts. God would bring the gospel of salvation to the Gentiles. And men of foreign tongues would proclaim God's truth as a sign of judgment to the people of Israel. Of course, God's purpose for Israel is not thwarted. Even in Israel's rejection, it's really within the very purpose of God to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And one day, that hardening would be removed and Israel would look upon the one they had pierced, weep in tears of repentance, and embrace the Messiah and welcome His kingdom. The kingdom in view here in our text is the kingdom between now and then. The spiritual kingdom, which includes all believers in this interim period of time before the establishment of the earthly kingdom. And some would respond that there is no such period in the Old Testament portrait of the kingdom. And to an extent, that's true. We do see Old Testament prophecies which include the coming of the Messiah and, and of course, going immediately into an earthly and eschatological kingdom. And so some would argue that there can't be this, this intermediate kingdom. It's, it's the model of the age and the age to come. And that's all there is. The, that this age is the kingdom which melds into the age to come as this world is judged and done away with. And so there can't be anything else. But in order to arrive at those conclusions, one must ignore the truth of the Old Testament that there would be a time of the Gentiles. The Old Testament clearly presents that. Uh, we, we see glimpses of this in the Old Testament. We, we would also need to understand that such a view requires a literal interpretation of the promises of Messiah's first coming. I mean, after all, we know the details of His first coming, right? We, we know that the prophecies of the, of the Christ to come were literally fulfilled, right? He was literally born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. He, he literally came riding into Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey, 
30 pieces of silver, pierced in his hands and feet and side, placed in a rich man's tomb, raised from the dead, all the rest literally fulfilled. But then for this view to be true, we would have to say from that point forward, we have to hold to a spiritual fulfillment of all of the promises of Messiah to come. That when it speaks of a restoration of the booth of David in, in, in the book of Amos, for example, it's not Israel, it's a spiritual people. When it speaks of planting vineyards and drinking wine, which of course John Calvin said, well, wait a minute, there can't be actual wine in heaven. There's no grapes in heaven. It's a spiritual kingdom. And so he said, we've got to take this spiritually then. Well, wait a minute. All of the first coming was taken literally. Why would we change our interpretive method for the second coming? That makes no sense. So, such an, absur- uh, an abrupt change of interpretive method is unwarranted. Though not clear, there is in the Old Testament Scriptures a hint of this time between Christ's first coming and His second. Not much specific, but we do have, for example, the, 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 the teaching that there will be a time when Messiah is rejected by the Jews. Uh, a, a reference, of course, to His crucifixion. Uh, another time when the Jews will look back upon that rejection in repentance. And we see this in Zechariah 12 through 14. We see this again in Isaiah 53. The Jews looking back in time, seeing that they had rejected their Messiah, repenting, turning to Him, embracing Him. And so there is a period between. We don't know how long that period is uh, from the Old Testament, but we do know that so far we've been in that period for 2,000 years. And one day, that intermediate period will come to an end. In the meantime, the truths that Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 13 in these parables are in practice, in place. The kingdom which exists between the Lord's first coming and His second coming. The mysteries or the secret things of the kingdom that Jesus speaks of here are the revelation from God only to the people of God regarding the nature of this kingdom, as well as hiding the nature of this kingdom, concealing it from the rest of the crowd. To you, Jesus says, referring to the disciples, to you it's given To them, the rest of the crowd, not given. Notice who is in the crowd of whom it is given to. You see, when when Jesus speaks of a kingdom, it always includes the fact of the sovereignty of the king. There's no way to separate these two things. Where there is a king, there is a sovereign. Where there is a kingdom, there is one who rules over every aspect of that kingdom. Verse 12, For to the ones who has, 
more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. To the one who has. Pause. Okay. Why does this one have in the first place? That's our first question. Because God has chosen to give. To the one God has chosen to give, he will have abundance. He will be given even more. But to the one who has not, okay, why doesn't he have? Because God hasn't given. To the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken from him. To the one whom God has chosen to give, chosen to give understanding of spiritual truth, more understanding will be given to him. The context here is of the secrets of the kingdom, understanding of the mysteries of the kingdom, which God chooses to give to those whom he chooses to give this knowledge. Others may hear the very same teaching and yet not be chosen by the Lord to reveal its meaning and its secrets. You know, we, we, we can see an illustration of this just as we take the gospel out to the streets of our city. We preach the gospel. We, we sow seed, right? And, and why is it that two men, both hearing the very same message, one receives the message, understands the spiritual truth, bends the knee before Christ, and repents and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet the other one, whether it be walking away mocking, walking away laughing, walking away unaffected, or getting angry. No matter what kind of rejection response, why is it that this one rejects while another receives? That's the point of the text here that Jesus is laying out before us. Some may hear, but unless God chooses to reveal the secrets of the myst- and the mysteries of the kingdom, they can hear, but not with spiritual ears. Much like the seed on the hard path, even the truth he hears will be snatched up and taken from him. Verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables. This is why, Jesus says, because, ah, so that. Seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. This is why I speak to them. A reference to the crowds. This is why I give them parables and parables only. As verse 11 says, It has not 
been given to them. It's, it's only in parables because the secrets are not given to them. Now we need to understand the quotation here from Isaiah 6, quoted from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Leon Morris writes this, The explanation is given in terms of prophecy. Jesus points to Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, a passage that tells of the way people refused to accept divine direction. He is saying that although the people heard the words, they did not understand them and did not want to understand them. That was the fault of the people in Isaiah's day, and it was the fault of the people in Jesus' day. But I would say more than this. You see, the quotation from Isaiah 6 is really important because in it, we find a particular paradox that's happening. The exact paradox, in fact, that shows us the circumstances of Jesus' day. These people are responsible for their rejecting of the Lord Jesus and therefore not being given this revealed truth from Jesus. Yet, at the very same time, the Lord is responsible for revealing or concealing these spiritual truths. For the crowd, the Lord is responsible for not giving them understanding. As France again writes, Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled in his own day. It was, after all, an instruction concerning Isaiah's own mission to Judah, but now is being refulfilled or brought to completion in Jesus' contemporaries. So let's look at Isaiah 6 for a moment. Isaiah 6, verse 9. And of course, if you're familiar with Isaiah in chapter 6, this is actually the prophet Isaiah's calling as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord says this to Isaiah, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. In Matthew, Jesus quotes this passage in its entirety from the Septuagint. He, he uses, the, 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 the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses this particular phrase. It actually says, for this people's heart has grown fat. Because he's saying, listen, this has already taken place. And because this has already taken place, because this is their spiritual state, they do not perceive spiritual truth. And in order to keep them from perceiving spiritual truth, in order that they may not be healed, Jesus speaks to them in parables, concealing Truth, that they not repent and not be healed. Notice in verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because, in order that. You see, Jesus' purpose is to keep them in the dark. 
R.T. France again writes this, Readers of these verses find it hard to avoid the conclusion that God has chosen some to be enlightened and has deliberately left others in the dark. And that parables are designed to reinforce this divinely appointed separation. After all, that seems to be what Isaiah 6 verses 9 and 10 was saying, except that it focuses entirely on those unperceptive and does not mention those who receive the truth. And Matthew is enthusiastically endorsing its viewpoint. And some would, would argue that, that Isaiah shows, just as, as Matthew does, that it is these whom have hardened their own hearts in rejection of the Lord who can't perceive. And, and thus it rests solely on human responsibility but I want you to notice in the text, both in Matthew in the Greek and in Isaiah in the Hebrew, that even the people's hardening of their own hearts is the very outworking of God's divinely intended purpose. We see this so very clearly illustrated for us in the person of Pharaoh. Right? Pharaoh hardened his heart, right? And then, and then, well, of course, God didn't reveal spiritual truth to him because Pharaoh hardened his heart. But wait a minute. Was it completely on Pharaoh's own terms that this happened? Is that how it works, that Pharaoh chose? Well, Isaiah, uh, rather, Romans chapter 9, verse 15. For he says to Moses, the Lord says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. And so it is God who is working out his purposes in both revealing truth to some and hiding truth from others. So as to bless some in extending compassion and mercy, and to harden others as vessels of wrath. Exactly what we see in the very next verse here in Matthew. Verse 16. But blessed are your eyes. Ah, blessed are your eyes. For they see, and your ears, they, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Wait a minute, the crowd around saw too. Didn't they? It's talking about the revelation of spiritual truth revealed only to those that Jesus chooses to reveal it to. Well, the rest of the crowd saw, just not with spiritual eyes to perceive. The rest of the crowd heard the very same words, but not with spiritual ears to understand. And, and Jesus says, your eyes are blessed. 
You see, these received revelation of truth not because they were smarter, not because they were more perceptive, but because they were blessed. Leon Morris writes, The doctrine of election lies behind these words. It is not a merit in the disciples that they understand where others do not. Their comprehension is due to the fact that God has chosen them and given them the gift of understanding. We'll pick this up, Lord willing, next week here and see this truth more fully revealed. Remember the words of our Lord that I quoted earlier from Mark's Gospel? Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? This is exactly the point. It requires God to give understanding. It requires God to shine His light in our hearts. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you struggle with comprehending spiritual truth found in the Bible, it will require God to give you understanding, to open His Word to you, to give you ears to hear truth and respond appropriately to it. And so, it's our Lord who is sovereign. Go to Him. Humble yourself before Him. Plead with Him to give you such understanding. For as Isaiah tells us, In Isaiah 66 and verse 2, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that even in our responding to you in humility, even in our seeking for spiritual understanding of your truth, even in our response in trembling before your word. That's the work of you in our lives. That's you giving us a new heart, a heart that no longer hates you, a heart that desires you, a heart that wants to know you. So, Father, this is your work from start to finish. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to do such work in us that you would make us humble, that you would cause us to receive your truth and respond appropriately to it. Father, that you would be pleased to glorify your own name through your people, through us, by causing us to understand spiritual truth and thereby live in accordance with that spiritual truth. Father, I pray that if anyone here this morning doesn't know you, I pray that you draw them to your Son that you grant them repentance, that you give them to Jesus. For we know that all that the Father has given will come. And all that come, Jesus will cast out not one and raise him up on the last day. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. We pray that it has honored you. And we pray that you would use this teaching to conform us further to the image of your Son. For your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.